0: Exciting news at This Week Health, starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT.
1: If you find yourself in a situation where you're having a cybersecurity incident and you're having trouble getting in contact with the right federal officials, you can always contact us and we will help you navigate that.
0: It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to Sirius Healthcare, Health Lyrics and Worldwide Technology who are our new show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Your response to ClipNotes has been incredible. And why wouldn't it be you helped create it? ClipNotes is an email we send out 24 hours after each episode airs. And it has a summary of what we talked about, bullet points of the key moments in the show. And it has one to four video clips. So you can just click on those and watch different segments that our team pulls out that we think really captures the essence of the conversation. It's simple to sign up. You just go to thisweekhealth.com, click on subscribe. It's a great way for you to stay current. It's a great way for your team to stay current and a great foundation for you and your team to have conversations. So go ahead and get signed up. Today, we were joined by Mari Savickas, VP of Public Policy at Chime. And I'm excited to have this conversation. It's an opportunity to talk about policy without really delving too far into the politics of it. Mari, welcome back to the show.
1: Well, thanks. Bill for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm reminded that you're like in some rural location because there's always a delay from when I ask you a question till you respond.
1: Middle of nowhere, Virginia.
0: <laughs> Middle of nowhere. So you're not back in the office yet. So the, the hill is, DC is still not functioning the way it was prior to, to COVID.
1: No, it's not functioning the same way at all. In fact, I was I was in the city a few weeks ago at our bricks and mortar office and I just saw, again, it, it seemed like maybe things were trending in the right direction, maybe like I'd say in July. And then in August, it started to peter off again, at least where we were, our office is off the hill. And yeah, it's not normal. Not normal. I mean, August is also a recess period, but there's still there was very little activity going on.
0: I'll tell you, I, I was looking at the numbers, the COVID numbers, and DC's in the top two in terms of... Spread and the surge that's currently going on across the country—it's in the top two in terms of combating it. And uh, part of that is people aren't there. I mean, the the policies are good in the state of DC. In fact, I attend a church that's in DC, but I do it online, and they're still social distance, masking, and doing a bunch of that stuff for uh, wow. for those public settings. So, DC is pretty much living by the. Uh, standards that they're trying to drive across the country
1: yeah i mean i didn't realize it was like you're saying it's a number two in terms of like a hot spot oh know, no number that two in cities. the other direction
0: number two in terms of safe
1: oh okay oh like yeah i'm surprised to hear that yeah gotcha gotcha
0: yeah i remember that struck me that dc was one of the best areas in terms of combating the spread of of the virus at this point all right first of all we're going to do your Brief. If people haven't signed up for this, your team sends out a, a briefing.
1: It's every Monday. All of our members get it and our foundation firms. And if you're a friend of Chime, they can also receive it. So anyone who wants to be added to it's pretty much like the pulse check of Washington and all things like health IT and technology. You can subscribe at policy at ChimeCentral.org. We can add you. All We're right. A friend so of Bill, you're a friend of mine.
0: I'm already a Chime member, so I get this. And it's actually really good. So it helps me. To keep my pulse on the things that are happening in DC, and as we know, the regulatory environment is something that really drives healthcare. So we have to, as IT leaders, we have to understand it. And then you are our voice into it, so to speak back to some of the regulations that are coming. So we're going to talk about two things specifically from your letter. The first, we'll talk about the cybersecurity meeting that went on between this administration And some of the private sector companies, cybersecurity, major initiative, May was the executive order, July 28th, president issued a national security memorandum. And so there's a lot going on with regard to this. So let me give you a couple of highlights and then we can discuss a little bit. So the Biden administration announced that NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, will collaborate with industry and other partners to develop a new framework to improve security and integrity of the technology supply chain. That's number one. Biden administration announced formal expansion of the Industrial Control System Cybersecurity Initiative to a second major sector, which is uh, natural gas pipelines. So it was first the electrical grid, now they're moving to natural gas. And then you have yeah. the the private companies with their announcements. Apple announced they will establish a new program to drive continuous security improvement throughout its technology supply chain. And it's basics, right? They're going to drive... Mass adoption of multi factor authentication, security training, vulnerability remediation, event logging, and incident response amongst their supply chain. Google announced that we'll invest $10 billion over the next five years to expand Zero Trust. They're going to help secure the software supply chains and enhance open source security. They're also going to train up to 100,000 Americans with their digital skills certificate program that they launched. IBM's going to train 150,000 cybersecurity professionals. And they're going to do that in partnership with historically black colleges. Microsoft announced they're going to invest 20 billion over the next five years to accelerate efforts to integrate cybersecurity by design and deliver advanced security solutions. And then Amazon also had an announcement here, they're going to make available to public at no charge the security awareness training it offers to its employees. And then there's things that go on there. Talk to me about the cybersecurity initiatives that we see coming out of this administration and how they're going to impact or how they're being received by health systems across the country.
1: Yeah. If anyone who's listening is a reader of our debrief, you may have noticed that one of the quotes to be included from the president from earlier this summer was that they're treating the new war is actually not going to necessarily be fought on the physical battlefield. It's going to be being fought in the cyberspace, which probably comes as no surprise to anyone who follows cybersecurity. But you know, you you do need to treat it as a threat to national security. And so there's a ton of interest in this. And as you noted, it's there's a hundred day sprint on energy. Now they're going to move on to gas. And we'd like to see them move on to healthcare. That hasn't happened yet. So many of the initiatives that you've announced or, or discussed are actually there's funding for broad cybersecurity across the entire country. So 16 critical infrastructures, we're one of them. Again, I have some figures here I pulled for you on. Like I think CISA got 650 million in the beginning of this year. So that money's in place. And then there's in the infrastructure package, there's more money that could potentially be coming. We're obviously looking that's like being deliberated right now. So we'll be looking for that. But there, there's been a huge infusion of cash into Department of Homeland Security, SISA, to try and address some of these challenges. These efforts are just getting kicked off, like the one you just mentioned. The, Joint Cybersecurity Roundtable that they just had as a public-private effort. I think you're going to see CISA trying to do more with public-private partnerships. If you look at their website, it's cisa.gov backslash jcdc. I mean, industry and CIOs and CISOs will care about this. So we're going to be digging in and trying to figure out where it is that they're going to be working with the healthcare sector. And we plan on talking to HHS about this, like where? what's their role? So there's some opportunity here. I think this is just getting started. And there's also potentially going to be another big infusion of cash into the cyber arena via the federal government.
0: You have a lot of chief security officers for health systems that are pretty well connected. They have different groups that they have formed. They have different, I want to say bulletin boards, but that says how old I am, but they have different feeds that are coming into them almost to the minute what's going on in the world. They have some early detection systems of attacks that are going on and those kind of things. What are some of the things that Chime has specifically for security professionals that's helping them to stay ahead of this, to get connected with one another and and to really solidify their security position for their health system?
1: Oh, we have so much about, I mean, it's our number one issue in terms of our government affairs shop. This is the number one issue we advocate for on the Hill. So we are constantly looking for the right balance of incentives versus penalties, right? I mean, I think we talked in one of your previous shows about HR 789. That was a bill that was signed into law the very end of the last administration. And that is going to bring some relief in the form of shortened audits. You'll get credit for using cybersecurity best practices. So things are moving, I think, um, potentially in the right direction, but it still is a very punitive culture. There's a lot that I think is going to be unfolding in the next year. So number one, we have a ton of free resources on our website. So I'll give you all this after the show. But if you find yourself in a situation where you're having a cybersecurity incident and you're having trouble getting in contact with the right federal officials, you can always contact us and we will help you navigate that. We don't have to be involved in what the you know nature of the incident is, but we've done that for a few members this year. Unfortunately, some government agency is not being entirely responsive or they're having a hard time getting to the right people. We can help facilitate that for you. So that's one thing that we do for members. The other thing is, as I just mentioned, we advocate for more resources for you. We're your eyes and ears on the ground in Washington, D.C. every day because you have a real job to do and you don't have time to necessarily you know, go fight all the fires of insanity in Washington and advocate what you need. So that's what we also do. We have cheat sheets. We're tracking all the funding issues that are going on right now. Where's the money going? What's CISA doing? CISA is blowing out their org chart right now. We're going to try to figure out where is this money going? How can healthcare be at the forefront of this? So we'll be positioning our sector to be the forefront. And then last but not least, not self-serving at all, but our health sector, right? So the health, if you're not a member of the health sector Ooh. and you have no idea what this is, it's free. We are super involved, meaning CHIME and AHIS are very, very involved in this. And we have members who lead up some of the work groups. For example, 405D, super unsexy name, Bill. Oh my gosh, if have you haven't heard about 405D and cybersecurity best, Google it now. Because this will be what you'll be able to um, get credit for. So these are cyber practices developed in conjunction with the federal government not mandatory, right? It's just voluntary use. But let me bring something back to you. You mentioned that White House roundtable. Did you notice that there's a piece in there? There were two attendees that were specifically called out who offer cyber liability insurance, scrolled kind of down to the bottom. You know what one of them said is, as a condition of getting cyber liability insurance, we are going to mandate that you meet certain best practices. What would those best practices be? Maybe it's something that we, maybe we could get them to convince them to say, hey, this is something we've developed in the healthcare sector. It's developed by CISOs in conjunction with the federal government right now. The use is voluntary. That would be amazing, right? But that little morsel that's buried in there is very interesting because we've been hearing from members that they are getting sledgehammered over costs and that their liability insurance is going up so much so that they have to get a second policy, like a supplemental, and even their first policy wouldn't even cover what they had last year. So we're collecting, it's like I'm a detective, right? I'm like collecting all the information about what's going on, trying to get ahead of it and trying to position the provider community's interests in healthcare, of course.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. Resilience, a cyber insurance provider announced It will require policyholders to meet Mm -hmm. a threshold of cybersecurity best practices as a condition of receiving coverage. And Coalition, again, a provider announced it will make its cybersecurity risk assessment and continuous monitoring platform available for free to any organization. So that's interesting as well. All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the HIPAA rule. There's been a proposed HIPAA rule that's out there. And there's two documents I'm looking at. One is your cheat sheet, which has an awful lot to look at. And then the second document I am looking at is the CHIME response, okay? So let's start with summary of key proposals. So on January 21st, the last day of the Trump administration, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued a proposed rule on HIPAA to modify the standards for privacy and individual identifiable health information under the Health Insurance Portability Act, all right? So that's HIPAA. And... One of the things you have underlined, big letters here. This is a proposed rule. Nothing in this rule is in effect until HHS issues a final rule. All right. So, how far along in the process are we? Are we like in the beginning, third, or are we closer to the completion?
1: You would think that that would be an easy and straightforward question to answer. That is not easy and straightforward. And I mean, the comment period closed like a few months ago. We do have someone presenting from OCR next week on the rule. It's free to anyone, Bill, you want to join the webinar. You can listen, hear all about the HIPAA rule. So I think we're still in the early process. Anyone who pays attention to rulemaking knows it takes like years, <laughs> like years to, right. to, to get something out the door.
0: But the mistake we the make minute. as CIOs is we say, well, this is going to take a while. And then all of a sudden it becomes a final rule. And then we're like, oh man, we've got a lot of catching up to do. So what you're doing is making people aware, Hey, it's out there. So that they can plan accordingly. Although some some of this might not actually come to fruition, or maybe none of this would come to fruition. That's a potential.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what we want to do is like we don't want to just like be like, oh, the final rule is here. Look at that. <laughs> like you're like, it's more like, let's grease the wheels. It's kind of like I do with my son. I'm like, like, let me mentally prepare you for what's coming next. Right. So right. you just have to be like, let me just wet your appetite and just be like, here's what's happening right now. Nothing you have to do to comply but like there's some more, I don't know, sprinkled in there, mandatory use APIs and things like that. So you want to kind of pay attention. And the other thing too about this rule, which is so fascinating, again, I find it fascinating, is there like a zillion, there are dozens of questions, Bill, thrown out at the industry. Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? You're like, this isn't really a rule. It's like an RFI in some ways. So it was a lot of like, hey, what do you think of?
0: All right. So let's give people a little bit of a taste of what's in this. So It provides patients access to their records within 15 business days rather than 30. And 15 business days is what? That's at least uh, 20 20 days of actual days. Allows patients to direct their PHI and an EHR to third parties, including other providers, creating a second pathway for patients to obtain their data under the rights of access authority. Requires that covered entities allow... Every app that want to register with an API to provide access for an individual, assuming this is practical for the CE and barring any security concerns, any CE or business associate that makes a secure standards-based API available cannot deny the app registration because that would be denying individual access, replaces the exercise of professional judgment standard with a standard based on good faith belief concerning an individual's interest replaces a provision that lets CEUs or disclose PHI based on a serious and imminent threat. And then there's a bunch of others, changes the fee structure, prohibits unreasonable patient identity verification requirements, Mm -hmm. and so forth. So the response from CHIME is, a lot of it really makes sense. I'll push back on some of it, and then you can tell me the reasoning, but HIPAA and information blocking, essentially what you guys are saying is you know what, bring these two together, not bring them together, but but make the definitions the same to define a, a covered entity, the same, define a provider, the same, just get these two groups together to make the definitions the same. That would make life easier for us rather than having to figure that out. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. The next one, individual rights access. So 30 to 15 days. Now I, When I first read that, my initial response is to say, this is the digital age. Of course, we can do this in 15 days. But there is a reason why this isn't as clean cut and straightforward as the people looking at healthcare saying, hey, you guys are Luddites. Come on. With APIs, you should be able to get that down to one day. But there's reasons. So what's the reason that Chime is pushing back on behalf of our membership?
1: It's really about threading the needle, right? So when you're dealing with absolutes, like we can't deal with absolutes in every scenario. Like mean, if you turn, I mean, I don't know, anyone's gonna read our what I would call our manifesto, but if you read into the comments a little bit more, you'll say that we generally agree that in most standard cases, 15 D should be totally reasonable. It's probably even closer, like maybe even a five. But the problem is arises when you have these outlier situations, and we got a lot of pushback from our children's hospitals because there are issues involving, you're asking for one example, custody. It's a very thorny issue. So I'm not in a children's hospital, but I take it face value that they've dealt with this many, many times. So something like that would be difficult. There could be also a cyber incident. There could be a situation where maybe your EHR goes down for a day or two, and some, maybe some like costly days are lost. But it's probably mostly things like, I would say, these custody incidences. We, I think if you're having a major uh, natural disaster, probably OCR would deem that you know, a natural disaster area and waive some stuff. But in the absence that they didn't, we're just looking for, you have to either have some sort of exception yeah. or just keep it as it is and know that most people hopefully will be doing you know it less than 30 days.
0: Yeah. And, and the exception process is going to be key there. Having worked in healthcare, I know that. From state to state, there's a different exceptions, age limits for children and whatnot. So it's pretty interesting. So addressing forms access is your next one. We are concerned about the implications of proposals involving personal health applications, calling for covered entities to transmit electronic health information to PHAs, which is personal health applications, without requiring those PHAs to include privacy and security controls or sign a BAA. So that's an interesting one to me in that you're not going to have them sign a BAA. I mean, signing a BAA would require them to sign it with, if they're a national entity, every health system across the country, which would be interesting. But one of the reasons they're doing this is to sort of free the data and get the data into the hands of the the patient. And that would be a significant Block, I think, and it would almost be inviting them into the bureaucracy of healthcare. I don't know if you've tried to get a contract signed by a health system, but we streamlined the process to get it down to thirty to forty-five days. And prior to that, it was three to four months to get a, a contract signed. So BAA would just be would just put a stop to this. So that that one, I'm not really a fan of the privacy, privacy and security controls is a problem we absolutely. Have to address. That's one of the problems we have to address with these PHAs coming in and requesting the information. What am I missing? As I talk about this, is there an aspect of this that I'm missing?
1: So, you know, this actually goes back to for for your loyal listeners, the the term information blocking, right? So, I mean, we fought this battle, and we with many others fought it, and we lost. We lost it during the last administration. And it's super disappointing because this is all about there being two parallel but different universes. You have HIPAA over here and those who have to comply with HIPAA, and there are penalties for non-compliance. And then there's the other app community that is basically the Wild West, and they are not governed by HIPAA. And so while patients do actually have the right to, and we completely and strongly support a patient's right to have access to their information, we're all patients, Bill. Don't you want your information when you ask for it?
0: Absolutely. So of course
1: we do. However, that being said, I think as consumer, we're like the patient turned consumer, you tar- start to look at these privacy terms and conditions in the app. And I'm pretty sure that most people have not read them. I have, Okay. And it's like scrolling down through, like, what is it, 10 pages on your phone of four-point font to figure out that they actually are going to send it to their third party, repurpose it, commoditize it. So it's more about transparency, and that is something that that battle was lost. When we were dealing with the CMS and the ONC interoperability rules, we're like, hey, how about when a patient says request, that there's some sort of disclaimer that comes up and says, I'm going to read these to you. Do you sell identifiable information? Make it plain in English people who you know maybe are at a high school level could understand this or maybe who don't have English as their first language? If yes, is it used only for research? Do you use the data for marketing? What is your documented patient consent process and do you securely destroy data? Even these would be somewhat nuanced, but we lost this battle. and so the FTC and ONC, and, you know, decided not to go down this road. And so until you basically shore up these requirements, but probably is going to take an act of Congress, then we're stuck with a situation patient turn consumer is just sending their information out to who knows where. It could even be widely known apps that, and you don't know what they're doing with the data. So it becomes, becomes an issue. So it's transparency, really. We're not going to say, no, you should go do it. I mean, yes, but you know, it's kind of like buyer beware.
0: Yeah. Before people get the wrong impression, like, oh, this might change in this administration. Mickey yeah. Tripathi spoke at the last Chime event, and he's he's for this availability of the information to the public health applications. He's also for securing it and, and shoring up the rule. But it's the reason the battle was lost is not because it was the last administration. The reason it was lost Mm-mm. is because it's bipartisan. It's the 21st century cures. Absolutely. It's the, It's... The, the, everybody's saying, and you and I are saying the same thing. We want access to our health record. Now, yeah. the, the rules have to set it up in a way that protects us as individuals. We don't know what we don't know as individual patients. And that's what Judy Faulkner was talking about. That's what Chime mm-hmm. is is trying to defend is say, look, you, you need to understand that this could get out in the wild and people can start using this for commerce and they or do. anything. So.
1: They they do use it, and they they commoditize the data, and the data aggregators get it, and everyone knows now today that data cannot be really anonymized. So what you're dealing with is a situation of like if you have GPS location tracking data, just about any piece of data becomes health data. I mean, I could spend an entire show talking about this. <laughs> Pull the string, Bill. Woo woo woo. Pretty passionate, but I mean, it, it, so we just want some guardrails around this, and and the thing is. You're right. The guardrails are not going to magically appear. So basically you have to be an informed consumer and figure out where your day is going in a nutshell.
0: So you have three, three more things. You have strengthening the access right to inspect and obtain copies of PHI readily available should be designated to mean that the information is available in the patient room during the appointment can be pulled up and reviewed within the time designated for the appointment. It's interesting because I, I read that. I don't want to put that on the doctors. I mean, that would be. Um, it's
1: hard. I mean, of course you want, if will say. Say I go and get an x-ray today and I might want to just get the x-ray, have it portable, leave, right? That would be so nice. And they could, or show me on the screen. But sometimes it's not as easy as just having something right there. And so, I mean, I think we've all been in a busy clinical setting. What setting is not busy and clinical, right? Especially these days you're going to chase down something like, oh, I got to go to this department or it's like stuck in the computer. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not as easy. So I think all we're saying is if it's right there and probably defer to the provider or the clinician as to the level of readiness, right? Because the person behind you is the next patient that needs to be seen, right? It's just, we're not as well-oiled machine that you can just always. So we're just saying, yeah, if the, if the information's there, great. If it's not, You'll have to get it, you know, another time.
0: Although we were were planning for this back in 2015, all of the new uh, clinic offices, uh, everything that we were setting up had some sort of flat panel on the wall. They became so inexpensive. They're actually cheaper than an iPad at this point, which a lot of people are putting in different hospital rooms. And so in every one of those rooms, we were putting a flat panel that you could essentially, you could broadcast the medical record up or an image up and just have the conversation with the patient. But I I can understand why this could be a challenge if it's not already thought through and being in the workflow. So I, again, I'm I'm glad you're pushing back on that. Again, it's just clarity around these things. What are you asking? What are you requiring? Our health system was seven and a half billion. And so, yeah, we could put flat panels on every wall in the clinic, but Chime represents health systems that are much smaller than that and are not swimming in cash that they can just do that kind of work so you have to represent the entire spectrum of health
1: systems i think you just mentioned like ambiguity when the government uses terms like you have to make information indefinitely available that is the kind of thing that makes a provider's hair stand up on their neck like forever what do you mean In the last 10 years kind of thing do i have to go into boxes and stuff so it's just that level of ambiguity we have to have like bright lines we operate better with certainty
0: Yeah. I I remember in the state of California, we had to keep records for 28 years and our EHR had been in place for 13, 12 years when I got there. And I was sort of looking at our storage and how it kept growing and growing and growing. I'm like, we should just factor in that our storage is going to have to grow by this amount every year for the next forever, because we're going to have to keep this information for at least 28 years. And I, and I, I don't even think that was long enough. If people if you see people at birth and then you see them again when they're 50 years old, I think they expect you to still have their medical record and all the information associated with it. So yeah, retention is, is always an interesting issue for healthcare professionals. All right, let's go in a different direction. This is an interesting one. So, so you gave me this article, telehealth limits, battle over state lines, and licensing threatens patients' options. I assume this is about the state. It is. All right. So this is about the challenge of practicing medicine across state lines and the different state mandates that we have. And some states don't allow you to practice telemedicine. For example, Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore recently scrambled to notify more than a thousand Virginia patients that their telehealth appointments were no longer feasible. Their medical director said, and telemedicine at Johns Hopkins was not an option for them. Virginia is among the states where the emergency orders are expiring or being rolled back. So what happened is during the the pandemic, we had the emergency order to allow the practice of telemedicine across state lines. And now that's rolling back to state control in some cases. And so Johns Hopkins, which is in Maryland, cannot practice medicine in Virginia. So that's one of the main things this article is talking about. You picked this article. What aspect of this do you want to talk about?
1: Well, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all that, those analogies, which I really didn't care for about toothpaste, going back in tubes, right? Remember that? Like, we're going to, everything's going to be great, telehealth's going to be here forever. I still have my toothpaste. (laughs) So it's, I just wanted to highlight that these issues around telehealth are ongoing And they are not, I don't think that you're going to see some big sweeping piece of legislation. I mean, it's always possible, right? But it's expensive. And we haven't seen a number that fixes some of the more systemic issues that like around like the originating site piece that would have to be a change in Congress. And so there are some things that CMS has done. And then there's some things that Congress has done, but there are still outstanding issues. China supports the physicians or clinicians ability to be able to be in a different location from where their patient is, irrespective of the license. The the VA does it. I know it's a little bit different. The VA is a closed system, but we believe that that barrier should be removed. But it's more to highlight that we still have some challenges and we have retractions of payers going backwards at the state level, like you just mentioned. Like my son gets care in Maryland and I'm in Virginia and it's like a two hour schlep up there. So it's not super easy. I think Maryland rolled back some of their telehealth. Provisions as well. So some of the states are going backwards, even in the even in the midst of like the Delta variant uptick, you still have these retractions going on. So we're just paying attention to what's going on with with telemedicine. We're going to have another free cheat sheet available on Monday. So I'll send you the preview bill. But you know, just trying to keep track of what's going on, what's changing, what's been permanently removed, what's still an issue. One of the good things that we've seen is around. Mental health, right? Mental health is going to be able to. They have the ability to have a tele in perpetuity with you get your services via telehealth in perpetuity because Congress changed that. So that's really helpful. That was a, actually a while ago in the Support Act. There's a few things that you just have to keep track of, and and there's some proposals in the physician fee schedule. That's that rule that the government Medicare sends out saying, "Hey, docs, here's how you're going to get paid." It's proposed, right? But there's some changes in there, and so. It's just trying to keep track of some of these things. And it's not all like a fait accompli. So I think where everyone's fine right now, the HHS at the beginning of this year said, look, we're not going to end the public health emergency for at least 60 days before the end of this calendar year. So we're not quite 60 days yet. But given the Delta variant, I don't know that you're going to see a termination of the PHA, right? It just seems very unlikely. And that said, then you're back to like, well, when it does end, what is Congress going to do? And so conceivably, they could have a situation where they're like, what we call over here in DC, like kick the can down the road. We'll just do a Band-Aid. We'll let you do it for like the next six months or whatever they decide next year, but maybe won't make the wholesale change that would be needed to just allow these policies to continue in perpetuity.
0: That makes perfect sense. The challenge with this one, the challenge I think anyone who's fighting this is going to have. I had... Dr. Joseph Kavidar on the show, and he's the chair mm-hmm. of the board of, of the American Telemedicine Association. And I asked him this question specifically of, should we break down these barriers? And do you support this? And he essentially said he's in support of the state regulations around telemedicine and them controlling who can practice medicine in their state. So mm-hmm. he's not for breaking this down. I'm not saying that he speaks uniformly for the ATA, but I'm saying that it's it's interesting that people in key positions are not necessarily advocating the, the way you think they would and, and saying, look, it's time to break down this barrier. And I think if I were a health system, there's a, I'm trying to think of how I would say this. There's a competitive protection in place that the state provides by not allowing people from the state next door to practice telemedicine in our state. It means our physicians are going to be employed. They're going to be the ones delivering care in our state. And I don't have to worry about that level of competition. If Amazon wants to take Amazon care and bring it into my state, they're going to have to stand up some sort of mechanism to have doctors in the state provide care for those patients. So there is a protection. There's not consensus across this that it should come down. I'm in the same camp. I'm in the chime camp. I'm like, I don't understand uh, why a doctor in Philadelphia can't see me in New Jersey or a doctor in Maryland can't see me in Virginia. That makes no sense to
1: me. Yeah. There's certain groups that oppose us because they say that your liability or your your ability as a patient to you know seek recourse of something that happens in your care is more limited that way because you're in two different physical locations. That's the counter argument to this. I think we just want to see, and there are, I mean, I'm not an expert in the uh, interstate compact, but there's some licensing agreements that you can enter into where um, it makes it a little bit less burdensome. I, I think we just want to see some of these barriers removed and I let other people fight some of these very technical issues on the state front that you're referencing that involve like the House of Medicine, we just know that that's one barrier. And I was just, I mean, I guess the reason I pointed this out is that this is still really kind of like a hot mess in terms of, we've made a lot of progress, but there's a patchwork of 50 states doing 50 things. The federal government can't, you don't have the authority to remove everything they need to remove. Like, here's an example. We just commented and I'll send you My colleague Andrew wrote the the comment letter. We just commented to the the federal government on the physician fee schedule, as I just mentioned. And there's some of these issues, you can pick them apart in here. And, like, how do you define home? Okay. For example, the statute may say give authority for mental health if you're receiving services via mental health. And at the home, does that mean that you're also sitting in your car? Maybe because home is not a safe place for you? Home is in the statute. I mean, I'm getting kind of, I'm wonking out here on you with you, Bill, but it's like, how do you define home? Could it be your car? Could it be like your friend's apartment? I don't know. I mean, we just, those are the kinds of things that end up kind of wrapping us around the axle here in terms of like trying to sort through this morass.
0: Yeah, the term home really became fluid in the pandemic. I mean, I, I had friends, I'm like, where are you living today? It's like, I literally had somebody say to me, we're in our RV. I'm traveling all over the country. Oh, I'm still working right. every day, but today I'm in this campground. Yeah. Like, okay. I don't know
1: how to handle it, the snowbird RV situation where you've got a home in, say, Massachusetts. And I'm like,
0: I wish it was snowbird RV. It wasn't snowbird RV. It was somebody who's like 38 years old, has been going in the office all the time. and They have three kids and they're like, you know what? I can do this job from anywhere. They're not requiring me to go in the office. And I'm, hey. This summer, I'm going to take my kids. We're going. We're going. And they did. And he literally worked from call. from a campground. Yeah. There's parts of what's going on right now in the pandemic I hope never change. And the ability to take three months, travel with your family and still go to work would be one of those things I think that would be exceptional. All right, I'm going to close with this. You've been
1: great. Thank you. Speaking of my daughter just came in and like oh, good things about the pandemic is that I actually can like put my kids on the bus and like hug my daughter. She can't see her because she's like popping in and out. Guest appearance. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've been zoomed bombed by my daughter.
0: <laughs> so so, uh,
1: oh, thanks, Angel. Love you. Love you too. So yeah, I get to like be a real person and see my kids in the morning. And it's really great. And I'll go hug them. They just got off the bus right after I get done with you.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, so last article, predicting the future of healthcare, 10 takeaways from Hims 21 Let's just go to their 10 things we could comment on them. Wow.
1: I forget what they all are. So you have to remind me, there's like so many of them.
0: AI and machine learning gain steam. Here's the funny thing. I'm going to read these and I'm going to try not to be cynical. But when I was a consultant, I, I did consulting for a fair amount of my career. And we would have this, thing that we would do when we were getting ready to put a presentation together and we were getting to the final, we would review it as a team. And uh, anytime somebody would, would see something that was so obvious, it really shouldn't be on the slide deck. The people in the audience would essentially just say, no, duh, like artificial intelligence and machine learning is gaining steam in healthcare. No, of course it is. It's gaining, it's gaining everywhere. And I, I had a conversation this morning with a head of innovation for one of the health systems, and she was telling me just, it's really getting to be pretty cool what they can do with the data that's starting to get cleaned up and artificial intelligence to pinpoint things, to identify things before they actually happen to get ahead of things like We used to have to wait for all the HCAP stuff to get in, but now we can almost predict what our HCAP scores are going to be based on certain variables and those kinds of things. We can actually get ahead of this stuff and, and do things to impact it. So AI and machine learning is number one. Telehealth is going to gain steam. Again, I'm going to say no, duh. Of course it is interoperability fervor is toned down, but focus remains. Okay. So that's an interesting one to me. Do you think the interoperability fervor is toned down at this point, or do you think it's still going to maintain its high level of visibility for us?
1: You know, I, I think it's because, I mean, of current events. I think it was at hands when ONC and CMAS were going to launch their big rules and then everything got pushed back and the pandemic set in. And so it, it became a little bit of a sideshow and things, and, we had to have some delays in there, right? So it's, I mean, it's still happening. I think it's going to take center stage again, too. Like, I think president, for example, tonight is addressing the nation. I, I believe it's 5 p.m. to talk about the Delta variant and some of his plans. And then you also have that 17-page, I think it was 17-page um, document that he put out the other day of how to like address pandemics in the future. I bring this all back to say about interoperability. We'll probably still have it stay in the sun because we need to have better interoperability and standardization for the public health infrastructure. The same problems we had last year, oh, shocker, Bill, guess what? You can't solve them in a year and there's still a problem today. Like one, one example, I know you might be like, oh, I've heard this before, patient identification. That's a problem. Another area, too, that I think will continue to see its day is the transfers of care. We still have, we had high tech for hospitals, high tech for doctors, and then nothing for post-acute long-term care. And they're still out there, and some of them are savvy, but but they need help. They need some government assistance to help facilitate these care handoffs, because at the end of the day, it's about the patient. And so the hospitals will probably be the ones that get penalized. We're, we're paying attention to this very closely at CHIME. And those are places where I think interoperability could really, really flourish, but we have to we have to put some attention into those areas.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think interoperability will remain strong through the next four years and for a lot of reasons, but all right. So next one, health equity will take top to bottom interests and
1: mm-hmm.
0: careful touch with technology. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but I will say this, health equity is a topic i hear ceos talking about across the board and i now see that starting to permeate the entire organization it, it used to be something and again this might be my cynical side that felt like there was lip service to but not a lot of action towards and now it feels like it's starting to permeate policies within organizations and training within organizations and and, and programs for reaching the underserved in communities so it seems to be that is that is really taking center stage at this point. Uh, rising importance of cybersecurity. I think we both agree with that one. <laughs> Again, I, I just come back to I don't know what you're
1: talking about.
0: If, if this was on a slide deck, and I'm I'm using the polite way of saying, No Duck Consulting, they would say, I would say, in the next year, cybersecurity is going to take center stage, and they would say, no duh, of course it's going to take centers. It's because it has over the last six months, of course it's going to. Uh, How how healthcare fraud and OIG enforcement are evolving. That's interesting. I did read an article on this. There's a lot of data that they've collected now and are looking at all the activity around telehealth. And they do intend to increase their enforcement and looking at false claims and whatnot. And and that is evolving over the next couple of years. So I assume you're hearing the same thing.
1: Yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't spend yeah. a ton of time on the fraud thing, but having sat in the provider seat for, for like two decades, I know a fair amount about what they're doing. And the CMS uses AI. Speaking of AI, that's a widely used tool. Like I'm sure the credit card companies have been using it forever. Well, the government, I'd say probably in the past, maybe 10 years has deployed CMS at least, engage the use of those tools in a greater manner to spot where they think that there's fraud. I mean, OIG and CMS, they'll tell you like, listen, most providers are and not just providers, but like most people who bill Medicare are largely individuals and companies, but it's those who are not who they need to go after and they, they make everyone else look bad. And there's some very egregious cases of it and, it, and they're usually widely reported.
0: Yep. And they close us out with two others. Mental health is a key post-pandemic challenge. And we know that's the the case. We've really changed things on people that were already struggling prior to the pandemic. And then uh, the femtech industry speaks up and breaks out. So we'll have to keep an eye on those things. Amari, we are at the end of our time. I want to thank you for, uh, once again, educating me on all the things that are going on in DC and, and doing it in a way that doesn't make me feel it, it, as dumb as I really am about some of these things. I mean, there's there's so much going on. I appreciate the fact that you know all the acronyms.
1: Well, I hope to God that people aren't like, oh, what a snooze to us talking about hip-hop. But you can always call me or reach re- out to me and we can dive into these very um, mundane but important issues. So thank you so much for having me, Bill.
0: What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us go ahead subscribe today send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well we want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health it leaders those are vmware hillrom starbridge advisors aruba and mcafee thanks for listening that's all for now